the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. Uh, we took a break. We're in Titus. We're back in Isaiah, chapter 28. Uh, the major prophet, Isaiah. We're calling it the gospel according to Isaiah because it's all about Jesus. So um, I, I think what we have to do, we need to do, and I'm going to do, um, is do a short but succinct review uh, up to this point so we can just kind of get a context, bring everybody up to speed uh, as we look at chapter 28. We're jumping in chapter 28 today. So if you don't like context, again, I say this before, if you don't like context, you don't like history, go to sleep. Somebody will wake up in about 10 minutes because that's what we're going to do because we need to do it. Bible teacher, we need to understand the scriptures, it's particularly the um, context of the Bible and what te- uh, book we're studying. So Isaiah chapter 1 tells us that this vision, this knowledge, this wisdom, this insight that came to Isaiah, which he saw, we see in chapter 1 verse 1, was concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah's prophecy, we learn in chapter 1, was a time that uh, was uh, where he was prophesying there were four kings involved. He was prophesying during four kings, the king's reign in Judah. King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, which means that Isaiah was prophesying somewhere between 739, 740 B.C. to 800, mid-800s B.C. Now, it's very important we understand as we look at Isaiah is that by now the kingdom or the, the, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, were actually split into two kingdoms. Very important we understand that. They split in the northern and the southern kingdom after Solomon, King Solomon, had died. The northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes. And the northern kingdom kept the name Israel, also known as Ephraim. And their capital, the northern kingdom, Israel, capital was... Anybody? Samaria, very good. Very good. The southern kingdom, made up of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, kept what named, you read in scripture... Uh, their name was Judah, and their capital city, the southern kingdom, made up of two tribes, was Jerusalem. That was easy one. <laughs> Isaiah has been called mainly to preach to the southern two kingdoms, Judah. But Isaiah had a lot to say, we've seen up to this point. Not only is he speaking against Judah, the southern kingdom, but also to Israel, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north. Had a lot to say to them. And actually, as we close in chapter 27, we see that Isaiah really had a lot to say to all the nations of the earth. God can speak to whom he wants. We learn in Isaiah, too, that the book, the whole book, 66 chapters, is broken up into three major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 make up one section, chapter 40 through 55, another one, and 56 through 66 make up the final section. Now, we know also, if you've been tracking with us last year, last uh, uh, spring and and winter, that there are small subsections within the major section, chapters 1 through 39. We saw that as we looked through the first subsection, chapters 1 through 12. We learned... That chapters 1 of Isaiah through chapter 5 of Isaiah was the time uh, during the first king, Uzziah. Uzziah was a beloved king. They loved King Uzziah because he was a man who brought prosperity to the nation. Both militarily, uh, uh, land, he expanded the land. The people loved Uzziah. He did really well. But because he did really well, it went to his head. He became prideful and we know that it ended 
not well for him. He got leprosy and died. But what also happened is the people in which he was leading also became prideful. And the nation, uh, Isaiah had a lot to say to the nation about their prideful ways. Chapter 6, this king, this beloved king Uzziah dies. It was that year, very important, chapter 6, that Isaiah was brought into the presence of the Lord. Who see, he sees sitting high upon the throne, high and lifted up, Isaiah 6 says, the majesty and authority, where the seraphims flew, calling out one to another. You know this verse, chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Three times, superlative. He's that holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah gets this glimpse of the holiness of God, and the Bible says that he just becomes undone. He says in chapter 6, verse 5, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And by sheer grace, we learn in chapter 6, the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. And he touched Isaiah's lips and he said, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah is forgiven. And then Isaiah is sent to his, the people. He's commissioned, God commissions him to speak to his people. But Isaiah is told, if you remember in chapter 6, that they're not going to listen to you. I want you to go and declare the truth Call them to repentance, but guess what? Your message is going to make their hearts hard, their eyes heavy, and their eyes blind. But you keep going at it. That's exactly what happens. And Isaiah, over and over in the first several chapters, speaks to God's people about their sin of haughtiness and pride, a need for humility and brokenness. But the people refuse to repent. In chapter 6, things change. Very important. Uzziah uh, is dead. Judah has a new king. His name is Ahaz. And a very distinct plot was unveiling, if you remember, unfolding. Pekah is the king of Israel. Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Syria, right next to, uh, a little bit north of Ephraim, of Israel. Syria and Israel joined forces together to attack Judah. Was called the Syro-Ephraimite threat. What they did was uh, Israel got together with Syria and they said, let's attack Judah. Let's push Judah into an alliance with us so that we can have another nation with us. so We can fight Assyria. I got a picture for you. Who is gaining power in that region. So remember, Assyria to the right is gaining strength, world dominance at that time. Syria, by Israel, join forces together and say, hey, let's, let's join together. Two is better than one. But let's get Judah to join us too. This three is better than one. Judah says, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm not going to fight with you guys and go against Assyria. I'm, I'm not going to join you in that. In fact, Judah's king, Ahaz, joins forces with Assyria goes behind Israel's back and joins forces with Assyria. And what's interesting, if you remember in chapter 7, is Isaiah goes to Ahaz, king of Judah, and says, listen, you don't need to do any of that. Don't worry about Israel. Don't worry about Syria. Don't worry about Assyria. The Lord has said, be careful. 
be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. God will take care of you. And Ahaz says, nah, I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. I'm not, I'm not going to trust the Lord. My, my, the fear is going to overcome me. I'm not going to listen to what Isaiah the prophet has to say. I'm going to join forces with Assyria. And God keeps speaking to his people over and over about their covenant breaking, their sins of pride, their sins of the fear of man, their abusive leadership, we saw that, oppression for the, of the poor and the fatherless, their failure to trust God, looking to others for their protection and their future, which is idolatry. And therefore, God sends, if you remember, his heavy hand of discipline and chastisement upon his own people. God actually used and sent the army that they feared, Assyria, to teach Israel, to teach Judah, and really also to, to, to chastise Syria. But the point of God bringing this direction and he sends God to, to punish God's people is to teach them a lesson to teach us a lesson in the midst of trials and difficulties. Trust the Lord. It's that simple. And we've seen these patterns of of sin and rebellion and, and not listening to the will and the ways of the Lord, but what we've seen also, major theme in Isaiah, is the mercy and the grace and the love of God just keeps showing up all over the place. And that's why we're calling the study uh, the, the gospel according to Isaiah. Because that is the gospel, that we are sinful creatures. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated and to be punished by God. But in his love and in his grace, he offers to us salvation and forgiveness through the person and the work of Christ. Seen it all over in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the word Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. In chapter 2, we get a glimpse of the promised renewed messianic kingdom. In chapter 4, the branch of the Lord, the remnant of God's people, is washed and cleansed, pointing to the work of Jesus, his substitutionary sacrifice that washes us and cleanses us from our sins. In chapter 7, if you remember the promise of a son, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. We know ultimately that was Jesus the Christ. In chapter 9, Isaiah had the glorious privilege of, 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 of just declaring that, that the Gentiles will see a great light will come. There'll be a righteous reign of a child, the promised son of King David, who will reign and rule in righteousness and justice and have an eternal kingdom. We know that is Jesus. The gospel according to Isaiah. The last subsection we looked at was in chapters 13 through 27. If you remember, chapter 13 opens up with God judging the nations. The judgments, we said, is first and foremost for God's people as God judges other nations. It is a destruction for them, but salvation for God's people as he destroys and, and, and as he brings you know, judgment upon other nations. We see the children of God being saved. We also saw, if you remember, how God's sovereignty over the world, over every nation, not just Israel, not just Judah, God's sovereignty over all the nations was as he was delivering his people, as he was sending these armies in to teach his people a lesson, he also judged them for doing it. Like, well, how does that work? God is sovereign. And we see again this hope, this promise. 
this eternal king that will come. We just see this over and over and over again. Chapter 24, the whole world is condemned and is accountable to their, to their, to their God for breaking the laws. And then in chapters 25 through 27, as we closed a couple of months ago, we saw the city of man versus the city of our God. The city of man is where man is, is the center and worshiped. We, we see the city of man is where uh, they, are, they become abandoned and destroyed by God, but yet we see the city of God being raised up, chapters 25, 26, and 27, a place where there's security, a place where there's abundance, a place there where there's life, remember? In fact, we saw how God is going to come and he's going to swallow up death, chapter 25. The resurrection of God's people, we saw that. The millennial reign of Christ ending with hope for the whole world. You have your Bibles turned there. Chapter 27 ends with verse 13. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out from the land of Egypt, we're going to talk about Egypt, today will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So after establishing God's sovereignty over the nations, chapters 13 through 23, and over the whole world as God brings his people and his remnant to worship, now in chapter 28, Isaiah returns to a particular situation that was going on in Israel, in Judah, to illustrate once again the foolishness and the folly of trusting other nations instead of the Lord, the King, the one who has revealed himself. Excuse me, through the prophets. Chapter 28, turn there with me. And let me give you context a little more as we get into chapter 28. Okay, the Assyrian army, remember, God is sending in the one that Ahaz said, hey, I'll join forces with you so that Israel and Syria don't mess with me. I'll join forces with Assyria. Assyrian nation sent by God is coming down, it would be west, north, uh, west, south, down into Syria and into the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Samaria, Israel, right? So Assyria is coming down into Syria, into the, into the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're coming down and, and they're coming into the cities, okay? And they're in the process, which will happen, they're in the process of actually decimating the northern kingdom, okay? It's going to happen. And as they march into, they come again, west, south, into Syria, into Israel, they're going to keep marching, why not, to take Judah. But God puts a stop to that. They're going to destroy Samaria, they're going to destroy the northern kingdom, but as they come into Jerusalem, God's going to say, "Uh, that's as far as you go. We'll we'll see that in a couple of weeks. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the background. The, the, The Assyrian army is in the midst of destroying Samaria, which is around 721 B.C., and then Assyria will continue to march into Jerusalem about 701 B.C., so some, some 19 years later. Okay, so that's what's happening. And Isaiah now is telling Ahaz, the king of Judah, listen, you had that stupid, ridiculous, unconceivable alliance with Assyria, and now they're on their way beaten everybody along the process, why would you go now and make another one? Another alliance, another covenant with Egypt. Why would you do that? 
That's exactly what's happening. Because they, they, remember now, Judah can't, they're not going to be, their, their covenant and their, their, their alliance with Assyria doesn't mean anything because they're getting ready to get stomped on. So they're like, all right, let's get Egypt to help us. And if we remember, let me just look if I could do this. Oh, yeah, I can. Okay. Egypt is down here. So Assyria is coming down, taking care of Syria, working on Israel, going to come to Judah. And Judah's like, oh, no, let's get Egypt to help us. Okay, that's the context. All right. Four things. We'll, we'll, we'll move quickly. The contrast of crowns, verses 1 through 6. The contrast of words, 7 through 13. The contrast of covenants, 14 through 23. Yeah, 14 through 22, actually. And then the counsel of God. So that's where we're at. So let's see, in that context, let's see what Isaiah has to say. First, the contrast of crowns. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Ah, he says, the proud crown of the drunkard of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he'll swallow it up as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. God had a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I, I, put, I squeezed it up there, but I'm not going to in the future. I just did it because we're back in the series. Bring your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch of them back there. Take one home. But have your Bible open with you. There's too many verses to cover, but I did it today, and if you got a little binoculars, you could see it, okay? So the prophet right out the gate used the word awe. Some of your versions, may, uh, uh, some of your uh, Bibles might say woe. Woe means lament. Woe is a grief at a funeral. What he's saying is there's, there's a warning coming. There's a warning against those who rebel. Uh, they're guilty. A funeral's getting ready to start. And the prophet right out of the gates declares that what, what's happening is there's foolishness in the leadership at Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Now remember, the capital city, Samaria, he's talking about here, stands like a crown at the eastern end of the fertile uh, uh, valley, Shechem. It is the crown of the nation. It is wonderfully situated, look at verse 1, on the head of the rich valley, there's this crown in this city where, where there's a flourishing gardens, there's flourishing groves, there's trees, there's vines, it's, it's beautiful. The very thing that God gave to Israel has turned something that was given to them, this, 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 this you know, grows in this gardens into a, a national pride issue. That's what he's saying. A self-exaltation, their prideful and proud crown. You know, it reminds me how often does the blessings of God, the, the gifts of God, turn our hearts 
into idol factories, as Calvin says. God bestows upon the Israelites a land flowing with milk and honey, but this rich fruitfulness winds up corrupting them. They'd rather worship the gifts than worship the gift giver. How careful, 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 family, we need to be so that this doesn't happen to us. This idolatry, Romans 1, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship not the creator, but they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, Romans 1. This false sense of security, this pride, this self-exaltation led these leaders to what? Party. Drink. And now this drinking has gotten out of hand and it's controlling them. They, they become gluttons and drunkards and idolatry, forsaking the fear of the Lord. What is meant to bring thankfulness and worship and gratitude becomes a stumbling block to them and leads them down this road of destruction. So the Lord says in verse 2, what he's about to do is to bring upon Ephraim one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. He's talking about the king of Assyria. Like a devastating hailstorm, Ephraim's glorious drunkards will be thrown down by this judgment of God. God is going to send to them the Assyrian army. You've got to ask, how, how many times through the history of the world as we see history repeating itself, right? Where, where its leaders and its people are, are, are filled with self-exaltation and pride only to find that destruction is ahead of them. If you buy into this idea that the, the glory, the, 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 the value, the weightiness, the pleasure and satisfaction are, are in this world, the end will be destruction, okay? Either in this life or the life to come. Either glory in God or you glory what you have. And that should stop us, right, in our tracks. And ask, you know, ask us, you know, ask ourselves, what, what, is that, what is life really all about? Is it about accumulating of stuff? Malcolm Muggridge wrote this. Can this really be what life is about, as the media insist? This interminable soap opera going on from century to century, from era to era, whose old discarded sets and props litter the earth. Surely not, he says. Was it to provide a location for a repetitive and a ribald, cost vulgar language performance that the universe was created and man came into existence? That's why? Because I can't believe it. If this were all there was, if all you see is all there is, then the cynics, the hedonists, and the suicides would be right. The most we can hope, he says, was from this life is a passing amusement, some gratification of our senses and then death. But it's not all. As Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder, whereas we acknowledge a king. Men did not crown and men cannot dethrone as we are citizens of God. Citizens of a city of God that did not, they did not build and cannot be destroyed, end quote. That's a lesson they needed to learn. Ephraim was in danger. The northern kingdom was in danger. The Lord had a devastating instrument, Assyria, who will humble them, humble them in their pride as a storm overwhelms. 
those who are just totally unprepared. And, and notice in chapter uh, 28, verse 2 and 3 and 4, actually, uh, Isaiah uses perfect tenses and talking about things that will happen. Verse 2, he cast down, really he will cast down the earth with his hand. Verse 3, they will be trodden underfoot. Verse 4, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is in the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig tree. In other words, what, what God has said has, in his God's mind has already been accomplished. The hand, the foot will throw down the people of Ephraim. Their pride, verse 3, made a riper judgment, verse 4. So much so when you see that tree and that fig in that time of season, you just want to go up and grab it and pluck it, verse 4, see it, and just eat it right off the tree. It's going to be that easy. But, verse 5, in that day, the Lord of hosts will, crown, will be crowned of glory. The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. You know, as the glories of the world, of Samaria's, as they become tainted with greed and pride, oppression, God remains. In all that's going on, God remains. His beauty will not fade. His beauty will not be defeated. In every age, there's a remnant that will be gathered into the final remnant in the eternal kingdom. There are those whose eyes have been opened to see through this, this glitter, this, this fame of life beyond the delusions and the appearances that seem to be reality but are only passing flowers, God will prevail. For they will see the true and glorious crown. He will be to them a true and beautiful diadem. He will be the glorious wreath of the remnant of people that honor him. They will glory in God rather than in Samaria. They will honor him as the beautiful and glorious and majestic king who is worthy of a crown rather than that proud, drunken people in Samaria. You know, when our false object of glory, when the false objects of pride have been taken away, when, when the sovereign work of God takes from us what we glory in so that we can see his glory, then he becomes that crown of glory. Isaiah sees doom, but he also sees salvation. A God who has is, who is made promises and his purposes go beyond just judgment for his remnant, but go for restoration. Therefore, God's people who are redeemed and restored. In that day, God will intervene and he will show a much more greater wreath. You know, many of us in this room have had stuff ripped from us. Stuff ripped from us that hurts so deeply. As painful as our idols are in our lives. As painful as our idols become things that God must rip out of our hands, it is God in his love. It is God in his mercy and grace that will not allow us to cling to things he knows will bring destruction and idolatry to our souls. John Piper he says, I rejoice in the sovereignty of God and all that God is doing because he wields it in all things, all things to preserve himself as my greatest 
treasure. When everything runs dry and the alcohol is done and the partying is over and the prideful exaltation crowns that they put are fading and become worthless, we turn to God and we see this standard. Verse 6, the architect, the standard of justice and strength. I don't think verse 6, if you look at verse 6 with me, I, I don't think he says... In that day, the crown of glory, the diadem of beauty, a remnant of his people, and the, a spirit of justice to him sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. I don't think Isaiah is saying we're going to win the battle. I think what they're saying is there's going to be a day when, when all that takes place, but the remnant will look to God. And the previous injustice and oppression will end. There'll be a restored community that will enjoy equal justice and external security through the empowerment that God gives. He said, when we come to the end of ourselves, we reach out for him. We have nowhere else to go. And he rescues us. And he's to us all that we long for. He, he becomes the crown of glory. The contrast of crowns. Verse 7 through 13. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit. No space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he said, this is rest, this is rest for the weary, this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go. And fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. The contrast of two words. The contrast of words. Notice what he says in chapter uh, 28, verse 7. Notice that word. These also real. These also. Isaiah now is turning to his own kinsmen. He was looking north and now he's in Jerusalem, in Judah, and he's talking to his own people. It is the same ones, verse 14, that need to hear the word of the Lord. The same ones in verse 15 that make a destructive covenant. But now he calls them out because there were those in Jerusalem, in Judah, that were supposed to lead in worship, that were supposed to instruct the people the will and the word of God. But they're drunk. (laughs) Unable to lead God's people, verse 7, the priest and the prophets reel, which means mislead. Strong drink by strong drink, swallowed by wine, stagger. Strong drink, they real mislead, again, in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. The, the image, if you keep reading, is impulsive. Jerusalem's leaders, drunk, falling over, slumped in the temple, drooling and vomiting. It was through the law of God that the priests were to give godly instruction. It was through the prophetic word that the prophets were to give the will of God to his people, but they rejected the word and the will of the Lord. What came out of their mouths was not words of wisdom, instruction, but I think literal and spiritual vomit. 
How important it is for God's people, for the leaders of God's people, when the em- enemy is approaching to lead with strength. When all hope has been drained, God's people to lead in a way that honors the Lord. How important it is to have true and accurate worship, hearing the word of the Lord when we're in a bad place, a dark place, a lonely place. How important is the word of encouragement and even an exhortation to someone in need of repentance and restoration. Tragedy is when leaders fall, the community suffers. These leaders are actually mocking the word of the Lord. Look at verse 9 and 11. Verses 9 and 11, the uh, prophet Isaiah is quoting the priest, kind of mocking, not mocking, but talking about what the priest and, 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 and the prophet's response to his ministry. Isaiah's preaching repentance, turn to God, trust God, and they're like, you know, you're a child, Isaiah. They're lambasting him, telling him, we're old enough. Stop talking to us like a little baby. One commentator wrote, the irony, this is funny, the irony is that a drunk is more childish than a child. At least the milk an infant draws from his mother's breast will make it more mature and not less so, unlike the alcohol they're drinking, end quote. And if you translate verse 10 in you know, today's idiom, it would be blah, 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 blah. Babbling of a baby. That's what we hear from you, Isaiah. Babbling of a baby. It was their way of dismissing everything he had to say. And Isaiah is like, okay. And the Lord says to, him, to them, okay, very well. Verse 11. Since you will not listen to the Lord... When he speaks to you, through the simple and clear message of the prophets, he'll speak to you how? Through strange lips, foreign tongue. When the army invades and you don't understand what they're saying, there'll be no rest for you but ruin. It's not like God didn't warn them through Isaiah and and tell them, look, trust me, look at the rest of that verse in verse 12. He said they'll speak to his people through foreign tongue, to whom he has said, talking about to his people, this is rest. I'll give you rest to the weary, and this is repose. But what? You would not hear. They wouldn't hear. Isaiah's mission has always been, we've seen this a lot, to call people, God's people, to trust the Lord by faith, rest in God. It was Jesus who said, come to me. Not, 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 not to something, not to, to a building, not to, to the world, nothing anybody could offer. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart. You'll find in me rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But that's beneath these men, these leaders. They don't think Isaiah is wise enough. They're the smart ones. They, they, they have the light, you know, the words of life. And then they're going to get what they have chosen. You know, when, 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 we, when we neglect this, when this becomes under us, not over us, and when we don't honor the Lord by honoring his word, there's going to be a price to pay. Isaiah, excuse me, the Apostle Paul told the church of Corinth, 
that the natural man, him without the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand it because they are spiritually discerned. Some of you, when you're here and you're hearing God's word, you're reading the word of God, you're like, yes, I want to hear from the Lord. I I, I want to be fed by the word. I, I want to know what God has for me. Speak to me through your word. Meanwhile, some people are thinking, maybe you're here today visiting, I don't know, or with somebody. You're thinking, really, the Bible? That ancient book? That fairy tale? I have more knowledge than anyone in that book. Same message, different impact. So the question for us this morning is, when God speaks, are, you, are, are, are we listening? When we read the word of God, are, are we anticipating? Are we waiting to hear from the creator, sustainer, sovereign Lord who gave us his word? Or are we like, you know what? I don't want to hear that anymore. I'm aggravated, annoyed. Don't, don't tell me what the scripture says. I hope that's not how you are this morning. God speaks to us through his word. And God will tell his people that when the army comes and they're trampling your land and commanding in their own language the slaughter of the people, you'll get it then. You'll understand then. Isaiah says, <laughs> and when they're, when they're in your nation, when they're, when they're attacking your people, it's going to sound like blah, 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 blah. Verse 13, he says it right back to him. Repeat chapter, uh, verse 10. Because they're going to be speaking in somebody else's language. They're going to sound like Babel to you. But you know what? When they destroy the nation, you'll understand. Right? And decades later, the Babylonians will rise to power. And they'll have a Chaldean tongue. And when they, and when they yell to the commanders in the armies, burn the temple down, you'll get it then. It'll sound like blah, 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 blah. But the place will be on fire. <laughs> the, the obvious principle, if you don't listen to the word and the warning of God... Guess what? Real life fulfillment takes place. And as a warning to us. All this because they rejected the rest and the salvation of God. To trust him. And yet God's going to bring destruction. Now the very last phrase in verse 13 of this portion. Verse 13. Look there with me. Last phrase. All this takes place that they may go and fall backwards. Now interesting. The word go. Um, means they're, they're, they're hearing the word and now they're experiencing what God is doing and it's causing them to go, yes, to fall backwards, but it is a learning process. All right, so the destruction's gonna come, stumbling's gonna come, the consequences are gonna come, but God says, this is the way you're gonna be taught. Oswald, in his commentary, makes a, makes a really good point. He says this, in order for maturity to be reached, The child must be allowed to suffer the consequences of its actions. Parents. For the parent to intervene constantly and to nullify the results is to give the child a wholly mishappened understanding of life. So these events come upon God's people in order that they may fall and thus learn, end quote. God's not going to keep intervening if it keeps us acting like children. Because he loves us. And he doesn't want to leave us where we are. The contrast of crowns, words, now the contrast of covenant. Verse 14. 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the plumb line and righteousness the plumb line. And hell will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelters. Then, verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through it, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. Morning by morning, it will pass through. Day by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself. On the covering, too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim. And in the valley of Gibeon, he will be aroused to do his deed strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, and I have a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Now, it's about covenant. And we know that God is a covenant-making God, and God has given covenants to his people. But, be warned, we can't, And we should not and must not make a covenant that is in prohibition or prohibited by the word and the will of God. And God, through Isaiah, is calling these people to that false covenant they are making. He starts off by calling them scoffers. A very strong negative term in the Old Testament. A scoffer not only, listen, not only chooses the wrong way, someone who scoffs goes the wrong way, he ridicules and mocks those who go the right way, okay? Turn on cable news. It's all kinds of scoffers. Choose the wrong way, ridicules the right way, not only being deceived, but delights in deceiving and misleading others. Now, we picked Isaiah to preach way before all this was going on. I'm just amazed how applicable it is today. The covenant that the people made, verse 15, is referring to their alliance with Egypt. We'll see more about it when we get to chapter 30. And Isaiah calls this self-salvation a lie and falsehood. It is a mirage. It is a mirage to think that they will find refuge and shelter in a covenant with some other nations when they were already in a covenant with the Creator for their protection and security. He says, in a slight of sarcasm, I think, Isaiah says, you know what, that covenant that you made really is a covenant of death. A shield, a place for the dead, because that's what's going to happen anyway. That's going to be outcome, the outcome of your covenant. They were the naive ones, the immature ones, not Isaiah. And in verses 16 and 17, we see this Lord's response. Again, hope in the midst of destruction. We see in verse 16 and 17, his response of their lack of faith. God says, I'm going to reveal something that I'm going to do too. I'm laying a firm foundation in Jerusalem. 
that you should and you must and you could build on. A huge stone tested, established, a place of security, a place of strength. Ancient cornerstones were, were these huge rocks and, and stones that were uh, the most determinative stone in the building. Everything else rested on it, supported the major superstructure of the building. It's very important. It was, it, was, it was a stone that was supposed to be dependable and trustworthy. And God says, look, I'm going to lay a stone. You guys are resting and trusting in Egypt, but I'm going to do something more dependable, more trustworthy than anything Egypt can do for you. It'll be a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Verse 16, and if you believe, if you believe, you will not be in haste. You will not need to fear. You will not need to run away. I will make justice, verse 17, the line, the righteousness, the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overcome the shelter. God says, I'm going to establish something. According to my faithfulness, I will make justice and righteousness the standard. And the standard by which God will establish will cause the the lying and the unfaithful to wash away. You can see the foundation of and everything else washing away. They didn't need to rely upon Egypt. They didn't need to, to, to have this covenant with them. It only leads to death. What they needed to do, what we need to do is trust God. Believe in his promises, and we could rest securely in the peace in which he provides. God has done his part. He's building. He, he laid the foundation. He laid the stone. It's been tested. And now what they need to do, what we need to do, is to place our faith in God and the promises. All of these contrasts, crowns, and, and words, and covenants are given to us this morning to, to, for us to, to, to make that decision, to be determinative in our own lives, in our own hearts, and challenging us to make a, a willful dependency upon God. Upon, no matter what is going on, we're going to rest in the Lord. We know him. We love him. We've seen what he has done. We know what he promised to do in the future. But in that hour, verse 18, the enemy rushes over the nation the death covenant with Egypt will be a null. It, it, it means it will show itself to be the useless, ridiculous, meaningless, hopeless covenant. It's not going to work. Egypt will not save Judah from the Assyrians. God will. And instead, the flooding scourge will violently sweep through the land. And they will pass through verse 19. Not once, many times. Look, morning by morning, day by day. No rest at all. And then they will understand the message. But only, look what it says, to sheer terror. And then in a proverbial way, look at verse 20 with me. <laughs> in, in a proverbial way, Isaiah says, listen, th- this self-trust, this, this covenant uh, of resting in someone else will offer you as much rest as a bed as too short to sleep in. Never found one like that, but I'm sure they're out there. As much comfort as a blanket that you can't wrap around you. I've been there. I drive you crazy, right? Feet sticking out, arm. And then it closes with God doing a strange work, an alien work. He mentions Mount Perizim, Gibeon. You know what those are? Those are places that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has is, is been anointed king and he's fighting. And God intervenes mightily on David's behalf. In fact, the next two chapters, he makes the covenant with David. Very important covenant. 
And God says, you know, I did a great work. I did a farm work. I did a, I did a, a marvelous work. But here he actually uses it and says, I'm going to do that, but this time I'm going to punish my people. And the only possible refuge really is verse 22. Don't scoff. See, you can, you can scoff the word of God. You can scoff the, the will of God. You, you can make covenants with the world, mocking God, denying his will, in hope that you could somehow get through it, somehow save yourself, somehow not fear. Or you could trust the Lord. Fear him, reverence him, awe, have an awe of him and the promises that he has made. He is the sure and firm foundation. He is the one who established the tested stone, a security, a place of rest, a place of refuge, a place of repose. Contrast of crowns, words, covenants, and now the counsel of God. Look at verses 23 to 29 to close. Four imperatives right there in verse 23. Give ear, hear my voice, give attention, and hear my speech. Think he's trying to tell us something? Sit up, pay attention. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground when he has leveled its surfaces? Does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in its rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. Why? His God teaches him. Verse 27, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cart wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So four commands given with two parables, right? Isaiah takes something that the Israelites and the Judah, people of Judah would know. He takes something about farming and agriculture and lays it alongside something that he's trying to teach them. And verses 23 and 24, there's a farmer, right? He's a humble man, but he knows that you don't plow forever. It's temporary. He knows that in order to have a crop, you don't just keep plowing. There's a time when the ground has been done plowing. Is a time to scatter seed on the soil. The second thing Isaiah emphasizes is the care by which the farmer sows. You know, he has the seed. He knows where the seeds go. He doesn't just throw it everywhere. He plants it in a way that is appropriate for each type. Scattering the fine seed. Putting wheat in his rows. Okay, I had to look this all up because if it was a, a cooking class or a pasta class, I wouldn't understand it, but I don't, I don't get this. But that's what they do. And how does he know? Verse 26, God taught him. Well, he rightly instructed as God teaches him. Verse 27, the farmer doesn't, when it's harvest time, he harvests his harvest in different ways. Some crops are threshed on the threshing floor and their sledges go over it. Some are dragged out with sheep to separate, you know, they, they, they're dragged out and they're separated uh, from the kernel, from the husk. And they, they use these uh, big uh, uh, stone uh, Rocks and stones and stuff of that nature. They, they got horses to do it and certain things. But, but Isaiah's like, but, but when it comes to cumin, you got to be careful. Like the farmer knows this. He doesn't just harvest all his, his crops the same exact way. They're, they're done differently. Some are beaten with light sticks. You got sledges, you got cartwheels, you got rods, you got sticks. All different methods. What? How does he know that? Again, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. 
And the parable is saying more than just, hey, by the way, the farmers know how to do this. They, they plant the right way. They plow the right way. They know how to harvest their seed. So you know what? God knows what he's doing. I think it's more than that. And he says that his, the Lord is wonderful, wonderful, distinguished, extraordinary, marvelous. He is marvelous and wonderful in counsel, excellent in wisdom. Wisdom has to do with not only the foresight to plan, but to have the desired and, and successful results. The plan and purpose of God. God knows what he's doing. His wisdom is magnified and exemplifies his own thoughts. The Lord will, will, will crush them. There'll be this threshing. But the Lord, listen to me. The Lord has a purpose in all that he does. He limits it to the degree in which he in his sovereign will desires. God is smart enough to know exactly how to work in your life. God knows exactly how to work in my life. Even through trials and tribulations, that may be needed for us to be faithful, to grow in our faith, but it's under divine control. In God's providence, the outworking of his sovereignty, he is faithful. Remember, trust him. Don't fear what man can do. Remember, family, all that Christ has done. There is more to God's salvation than deliverance from armies like Assyria. Our real enemy this morning is not Assyria. It is sin. It is death. It is Satan. It is hell. And those things can enslave us forever. God is saying, take refuge in me. Don't be in denial. Don't live in falsehood. Face the reality of your sin, the reality of your guilt. I will show you how I can forgive you and grant you rest, grant you repose, redemption, deliverance from sin, Satan, death, and hell. How? Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, I'm the one doing this. Behold, look, pay attention. I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure salvation. Him who believes will not be in haste. God is prominent in this text. God is and takes the initiative. The stone, the work of founding the stone is a work of sovereign grace. And who is this stone? Who is Isaiah pointing to? We know that the stone is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. In fact, the New Testament is abundantly clear that the stone, the cornerstone prophecies is fulfilled in the Messiah, Christ our Lord. In, both, uh, in the New Testament, both Paul and Peter quote this verse. Paul quotes this verse in chapter 9, showing that Israel stumbled over this stone, over, over this stone and they, they rejected Christ. He says in chapter 9 of Romans, Gentiles, non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith, being made right with God, perfect and forgiven, is by faith. Israel did it through the law. And they didn't reach it. Why? Because they didn't do it by faith. They were working their way. They were, they were making covenants with others. They were trying to do something else, just like some of you are doing here. And then Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They, they've fallen over Jesus, who says, I'm laying a Stone in Zion, a stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's in Romans. Jesus himself, I'm going to close in a couple of minutes. Just track with me another couple of minutes. 
Jesus himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke teach a parable about a tenant. And a tenant gets these people to rent his land and build and, and do a vineyard. When it's time for him to get some of the vineyard, he sends his servants to get it. You know the story? And his servants go to get it, and they say, oh, here comes the boss, the owner of the property, and his servants, let's beat him up. They beat him up, and they send him back, and the guy's like, oh, you guys are renting my property, and you bring me back my servant, beaten up? I know, I'll send my son. And they said, when they saw the son coming, what'd they say? They said, you know what? The guy's sending his son. He's the heir of the property. Let's kill him. And then we could own the property. And then Jesus says to him, what would you do in that circumstances? And the guy says, they would, they would die a miserable death. And the vineyard would be given to someone else. And Jesus says, just like the scripture says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord is doing. It's wonderful in his eyes. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Isaiah is saying, listen, the foundation, the stone, the tested stone, the, the largest and most determinative stone, the foundation that God is doing is more dependable and more trustworthy than anything this world can offer because it is on Christ, our solid rock. The city, the life of God is trust in Christ. Everything else will fade away. It is the rock, the church's one and only foundation whom we believe by faith. He is our refuge. He is our rest. He is the precious, tested cornerstone in him we could trust him in him we will not be shaken in him we could face any trial even death itself and stand on the firm foundation of christ in jesus christ god has forever demonstrated his love forever demonstrated his trustworthiness his righteousness his love his justice on the cross we must not mock god's foundation and we must not fear what man can do we must not fear that which goes on in our day. And then building in relationships and covenant with things that cause us to, to just be idolaters. We must, as Matthew 7 says, we must be the wise man who builds his house on the rock, which is the words of Christ. He is the kingdom. He is the rock. He is the one. The band comes up. Let me, let me tell you this to close. It is Christ alone. It is his atoning sacrifice alone. He alone, upon the rock in which we stand, can bear the weight of our sin and our guilt that was placed on him. He is a stone which has been tried and tested and not found wanting. Being the unique foundation, he is precious to his Father. 1 Peter 2, 4, I'll leave you with these words. Hear the word of the Lord. Come to him, family. Come to him. A living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God the Father, chosen and precious. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, Peter says, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do so. So let me ask you this question and the band will play. 
Is Jesus the foundation? Is he the tested stone, the precious cornerstone? Is Jesus precious to you? Or do you fear something else? You're running to someone else. And maybe you know Christ. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you have been born again. You're a child of God. But things have really crowded your life. And now's a chance to, to repent from that. As the church keeps coming back to the reality and centrality of Christ as we sing. Christ, our solid rock. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, Lord, we need to hear this. Your word this morning, I know I do. Help me, help us to be reminded it is on Christ alone that we stand. You have made a firm foundation. You have tested that stone and it is solid because it is on Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray.